Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 96 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Hey, I am really excited to introduce you to this week's guest, Larry Osborne. He is the senior pastor of North Coast Church in California. Fascinating guy. First time we actually met was uh, for the interview on this podcast, but I got to tell you, I just loved it. And one of the things I loved about Larry is he's been at this almost four decades and he has the passion of a 25 year old, but the wisdom of somebody who's done this for a few decades. So you're going to love it. You probably know him from his book, Sticky Teams and Sticky Church and the Sticky Church Conference and all that. He's had a very prominent, very successful ministry, but so humble, so grounded and some fascinating sort of background to how his church got started and why it took so long to grow, uh, but some great insights on whether you can close the back door to your church and how to do that, and also on how to align your team. Just great stuff. So thanks for joining us today. Hey, I got to let you know, you, you hear me say this all the time, but I really enjoy the interaction with you, and I do. And uh, tonight I'm recording this. Uh, tomorrow morning I get up first thing. I get to go speak for a day, uh, for the day, out of town. And it was one of those things, it's like, oh, yeah, I got to do the podcast. And uh, I've told some of you this on the road when we've met. It's like, hey, man, your encouragement on nights like tonight goes a long way. So if you're one of those good people who have left a review on iTunes, thank you. If you're one of the kind people who shout out on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, even I'm sort of learning Snapchat, um, thank you. It really, really makes a difference. And uh, really, you are the reason why we do this, because... I do honestly hope that this helps you lead like never before. So all those little encouragements, even some of you written hand, handwritten thank you notes. And man, I just I just want to say you're awesome. And thank you so much for that. Um, also, thank you to all of you who share this with your friends. If you found this helpful, a uh, great way to pass it along is just to, you know, send the link to a friend, text them with it or whatever. On the player that I use to listen to podcasts, the Overcast player, uh, they've got a share feature right there. And of course, they do on iTunes as well. And if you want to make sure you never miss anything, just subscribe. It's free. It's easy. You can do that on Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or of course, on iTunes. Hey, I want to uh, say thank you to a few of the sponsors of this week's episode. Thank you to EA Help. EA Help is a great company that can help you get the help you need so that you can get back to doing what you are supposed to do as a leader. And I don't know about you, but there are so many details in my life, like all kinds of admin details from my calendar management to email management, so on and so forth. And over the last few years, I've had an assistant do all of that and, and a lot more. And it frees me up to do, well, things like podcasts and speaking and writing sermons and uh, some of the stuff that actually I'm better at than those details because I usually get them backwards. Anyway, um, EA Help has been not just a sponsor to this blog, but a service that I've been using. Uh, my assistant, as you may have heard a few episodes ago, has gone off and uh, on maternity leave for a year, which is great for them, uh, but it left me in the lurch. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do? I turned to EA Help, my new assistant, whose name also is Sarah, is phenomenal. And I'll tell you, they're a great organization. So if you just need like even five hours a week or 10 hours a week, or you need somebody full-time, or you need a crew of people full-time, EA Help can help. You can just go to eahelp.com, find all the information there. Also, I want to let you know, I've got an opportunity this fall to actually connect with you in person that I want you to know about. It's on the Orange Tour. And you can just go to orangetour.org. I think we're in like 15 cities. I'm going to be at like 10 or 12 of them. And I would love nothing more than to connect with you. If you've never been on Orange Tour, uh, make sure you get there this fall. You can get the best rates. Just go to orangetour.org. So I just want to thank you so much for all the encouragement. And uh, I think you're going to find this hour interesting with Larry Osborne, senior pastor of North Coast Church in California. Here we go. Well, Larry, welcome to the podcast. I'm uh, so glad that you took some time to sit down and build into some leaders today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. Hey, give us a, a background, uh, Larry, of how you got into ministry and what drives your passion. 
<laughs> well, I grew up in an incredibly uh, outstanding Christian home. You know, I, I have no father wound or uh, the tragedy of dysfunction or whatever, but it was a dysfunctional church. Hmm. So uh, I um, really rejected the Christianity and not so much family of, of legalism and things that I grew up with. And then my uh, junior year of high school, uh, I was exposed to some Christians who were much more about the Bible instead of 20 extra rules. And uh, my eyes were opened in ways uh, that I had never seen before. And I, I just did one of those 180s, man. I want to follow God completely. The Word of God uh, makes so much sense to me. So I was one of those stories where you go back to the high school reunion, you go, you're a pastor? What's that uh, about? <laughs> And then I immediately got into ministry. I just started, you know, lay ministry. I started teaching Bible studies and my peers would come and we'd kind of fill the house with that. And so really from, I think, about 19 years old on, I, I've been doing some sort of ministry and uh, just loved it because I found out I could be Larry. I didn't have to be whatever image of a pastor and all those things I, I had picked up in those early years. So I had this great combination of exposure, good ha uh, family to scripture uh, it created a lot of things I, I wanted to prove a church didn't have to be. Uh, and so that's part of even my drive to say, no, you can do church in another way. Let's just focus on Jesus and the Word. Well, Larry, you're the senior pastor of North Coast, but you didn't, you didn't start that church. I think a lot of people think you started North Coast Church. Yeah, that's a common misconception. I, I, I tell people, no, I'm, I'm not the founder. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of the, the builder, if you will. Uh -huh. uh, I came, it was, uh, uh, it was a church plan. It was about a year and a half old, meeting in a high school cafeteria with food fights on the wall and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, my office was a borrowed parishioner's garage with a, literally a desk we got out of the trash of the big church I'd been a youth pastor at. Wow. So I know what it's like to be a church planter because that was the environment it was in. But I didn't do that hard work of getting that initial Bible study that uh, grew to about, I think there were 70 adults on my first Sunday there. Uh, mm -hmm. And and that that you know, dig up the soil, plant the seed. I waited until it had popped out of the ground and it was alive. And then I said, oh, okay, I'll come. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I kind of took the easy route of church planting, if you will. Yeah, but you know, often when we hear these large churches stories, and you're, how, how many currently attend North Coast? Uh, North I think North. the last I saw our average that uh, this year is about 11,100 something on an average weekend. That's a lot of people. And you know what, <laughs> and you, that's over how many years now? You've been uh, it'll be 36 years years this September. Incredible. Congratulations. But you know, in a lot of the conferences we go to, Larry, and a lot of the stories we hear, everyone just assumes you go from zero to 11,000 instantly. That is not your story, right? No. Tell us tell us what happened. This <laughs> no, incredible no, church it, growth. It, it, was it a decade where it, it just kind of It took a long time. Along? I think around a decade, we were eight, 900. But uh, actually, my first few Sundays, we quickly grew to about 150. Now, that's kids and adults, anybody who drove by and wanted to come. Sure. Uh, you know how you count those early days, so 95 adults or whatever. Uh, well, three years later, we'd grown by a whopping total of one person. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a total of a third a person a year for anybody who's challenged at math and listening in. So what what uh, happened at, at that point is is I was so focused because I'd had large youth ministries and what I wanted to do for God. I, I was candidly using the people I had to try to reach the people I wanted to reach. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was no uh, no surprise to me. God didn't trust me with more. But our growth was just kind of uh, at that three year mark. I made a bunch of changes internally and structurally to who we are, but we didn't take off. And really, a lot of the stuff that I do for pastors and the writing I do, I try to run through that grid of when we were five, six hundred, yeah. uh, uh, not the grid of when we're this massive church, because that's not where most of us have the privilege of ministering. Well, you have a pretty small audience if you're talking to people who lead churches of 10,000, that's for sure. Absol absolutely. And, and in reality, most of the core principles are, are the same. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they don't change. Well, let's, let's talk about the shift in motivation. That's really interesting that you said that, because I think there's more than a few of us um, in ministry who maybe have to check our motives from time to time to say, am I really after the numbers or am I doing this for the right reasons? What shifted in you and what in that season where you kind of went, okay, I'm using people to reach people, what shifted in you? Was that just part of your devotional life? Did did you go to a conference? Did your wife tell you something? Like, how how did you figure that out? <laughs> well, I, 
what really happened, I th- think actually my motivations were pretty pure. I wasn't trying okay. to build a big church for myself. But I was trying to do great things for God. And uh, where I was missing it was that uh, I was working too hard as if it all depended on me. Um, you know, there were a variety of scriptures. One really jumped out at me, and that's uh, Proverbs 21, 30, uh, and 31, where it says, There's no wisdom, no counsel against the Lord battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And uh, I was too focused on whether I won or lost. And that, that's really his call. Uh, my job was to prepare the horse for battle and to shepherd the flock that I had. All of First Peter 1, uh, chapter 5, you know, shepherd the flock you have. Yeah, and yeah. what I did is I fell into a common mistake I find lots of pastors still falling into. I love the hardcore lost. I love mm-hmm. the baby Christian who swore mm-hmm. in his prayer still. How cute is that? <laughs> me too. Uh, and, and then the on-fire Christian that was ready to charge the hill with me. But all of those people who came to Jesus with a lot of baggage and, and were kind of lingering at the back of the following Jesus line, I wanted to thin the herd. Uh, mm. In fact, I wrote my book, Accidental Pharisee, just really to myself, because there came a time where I thought I was helping God by saying, these people aren't following enough. They're slowing everybody down. They're in the middle of the line. They're at the back of the line. And and my passion drowned out my compassion. Mm. And uh, I accidentally, I think, became a Pharisee. Uh, you know, the Pharisees didn't want to be Pharisees. They thought no. they were helping God out. And so uh, no wonder people didn't bring their friends. Uh, like, hey, why don't you come to North Coast? Larry and the, that church will use you uh, instead of they will they will help you along the journey. And what happened is, I, frankly, I went through a depression because everything I'd ever touched in ministry in those early years, it just exploded. I kind of had a Midas touch. Wow. But instead of producing gold, it was now producing mufflers and nothing was working right. <laughs> and so wh- what, what happened is I, I really lost my vision of, of uh, in a good way, of who I was and what God was going to use me for. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought, man, I'll have a church of a thousand or more someday. I've always succeeded in everything. And I remember I had a life dream uh, book. I tore out the thousand or more life dream and, and replaced it with a church of 400. I'll spend my life in one place. That was our dream and our hope. Uh, and if we can get to 400 in this, you know, suburban place with lots of people, I've done about all I, I can be expected to do because that's the talent I have. And what it did is it released me because I no longer felt like I was chasing potential and disappointing God. Uh, maybe I'd had these large youth ministries because I had a large fishing pool to work mm. with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I relaxed and served the people I had, it was amazing. They just started bringing friends left and right. And it was a snowball deal. Again, it took almost 10 years to get to eight, 900. Uh, we had a little one-acre rented site we were using with parking problems and all that that I didn't realize was slowing us down. Sure. But that's what really shifted. I said, I'm going to serve the people I have so well, they're going to bring their friends. And we have an outer focus, but it had to start with uh, a focus on the people I have, and especially those who weren't cooperating. <laughs> so two two questions, if you don't mind, and these aren't on the, on the script, the questions I sent you, but hopefully they're okay. Hey, I'm good with whatever. My answer might not be good, but I'm... <laughs> Did your people notice a difference? Like when you, when you shifted, when that shift happened inside you and you're like, okay, I'm going to focus on the people I have and maybe we'll reach some more people through that. Did they, did they notice? I don't think there was a sense of like, wow, Larry's really changed. It's almost yeah. like if you lose weight or something, over time, uh, they, they, they suddenly go, hey, you've lost some weight here, haven't you? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and and so I, I think that happened. Uh, sure. my, the sense of Larry cares about me and uh, Larry cares about us more than he cares about using us. I, I think they sense that, but it was over time more than some radical kind of shift. Love the way you said your passion. What is it? Um, outstrip, drowned out my compassion. Drowned out your compassion. That's such a great way to think about things. So let me ask you this, though. You mentioned you went through a season of depression. Um, was it long? Like, I know this is a struggle for a lot of ministry leaders. I went yeah. through a burnout and depression a decade ago. Lots of my friends have. In fact, I don't really know too many successful pastors who haven't gone through some dark night of the soul of one kind or another. What, what was that like for you? And, and how did you get through it? Yeah. And I'm not sure we need the dark night of the soul. You know, sometimes on the <laughs> yeah. backside, we, we go, we needed it. I, I think we get it because God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And a lot of people that uh, 
have what the world sees as significant ministries are people who were born with a lot of drive. Yep. And, uh, and what happens is we run ourselves in the ground and we break and then God says, uh, okay, now that you're broken, uh, why don't we still see what we can do together when I'm doing the lead instead of you're doing everything for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, but for me, what happened was it was just a, a dying sense of a dream because, uh, Everywhere I'd gone, people kept telling me, man, you're, you're, you're really gifted. You're really, you know, I, I, as a youth pastor in the second largest, uh, uh, it was a Baptist General Conference church. I think they're called Converge now. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the second preacher at 25 years old and uh, had a huge uh, college ministry and this stuff. So uh, it was like I was always at the front of the line. And now we're growing a third a person a year. And so that particular time of depression uh, was really the death of a dream. Like, oh. I suck. I, I'm not as I'm. Uh, you know, maybe I was on the shirt uh, uh, coattails of uh, other people, and and I had to come to grips with it's about Jesus, and it's not about me. I was almost like a player, a basketball player, who has a dream of uh, uh, playing in the NBA someday, and he makes it, and he suddenly gets there, and he realizes, oh my gosh, these guys are good. I'm I'm going to be lucky if you know I uh, I can make the developmental league. Yeah. And, and I had to come to grips with that. And it was just a sad period because uh, I thought, uh, I'm not going to be able to stay here very long. Wow. And that was your dream, too, to be part of one church for life. Yeah, we felt that call. Not, not, uh, it wasn't crystal clear. It was kind of like when Paul says, thought he was supposed to go to Bithynia, then Asia Minor, and finally a pizza dream sent him to Macedonia. Uh, I, I've always been, even to this day, open that, huh, maybe I didn't get it right. But my wife and I both had this sense of a calling. We thought God was saying, go somewhere, dig roots, and just spend your life. Well, Larry, what do you think accounts for the success of North Coast? Other than, you know, A, it's in California, and B, God's <laughs> grace. Well, uh, I, I think on a human level, some of the things that have really made a difference is the, when we began to take care of the people we had rather than using them, uh, they began to bring their friends. Uh, uh, actually, and this is description, not prescription for sure. other ministries, but we've never done an outreach event or sermon series, and I have literally never told people, bring your friends. Uh, wow. it's, it, it's based on the idea in my mind that a restaurant doesn't have to say, bring your friends, and a great movie doesn't have to say, bring your friends. Uh, now, we are not a seeker-targeted church. Uh, we call ourselves believer, to use that lingo, believer-targeted, seeker-sensitive. So we use incredibly plain language. Right. And we everything we do should be understood by someone who's never been to church before. And San Diego is so post-Christian. Yeah, Maybe yeah. 7% of people show up at on Easter go to church. I, wow. I mean, it's, it's not de-churched. They've never been. They call it the book of a uh, 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 job because of Steve. I literally have that happen to me. What happens is I think a lot of us think that our people don't bring their non-Christian friends because they don't have non-Christian friends or care. And pretty much every Christian I know has non-Christian workmates and friends, and they do care, but they know their friend won't understand what that goes on at church. Yeah. And so what we do, I mean, our sermons are pretty long. They're 50 minutes. Uh, right. We, you know, we'll spend 48 we uh, weeks going through the book of Genesis or 62 through Luke but everything is designed for the drywaller who's never been to church. So we aim, we think through guys, don't read, never been to church. Mm. And what we found is, is uh, when God is tapping on somebody's shoulder, uh, their friends know it and they say, hey, why don't you come? And when they came, they, they found a place that was uh, pretty healthy. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of Christian lingo. Uh, but there was a deep commitment to obedience, but it was done in a gentle way. Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll show you weariness. No, it's uh, my my burden is light and my yoke is easy. And I think that's kind of what North Coast is. We, we push people on to the next step sure. rather than uh, uh, taking a whip and saying, we want you to go five steps further than you're going. And And that's really helped. And then the other most significant thing is, We've done a great do job of tying people not just to mission and scripture and Jesus, but to a relationship, because relationship is the glue that keeps people together through hard times. Mm. And let's talk about that, because, I mean, that's the whole premise behind um, Sticky Church, right? Right. You're, you're trying to figure that out. And you talk about a big front door, but Sticky Church, and, and this is really just an expression of the philosophy that you developed at North Coast. 
but you you really decided, okay, we're going to try to close the back door. Right. Tell us about that. Why did well, you end up there? Why did you? That was part of the shift, right? That like I got to care for the people. Yeah, I I had been in large churches, uh, seen very large ministries grow. I'd been at the beginning of uh, even one of the great movements uh, as a, a young high schooler. It was called the Jesus Movement, and saw things just explode. And uh, I was actually ground zero of it, you know, as a young high schooler. Uh, wow when it was like 400 people at what was uh, then a Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And, and what happened is, is I, I fell into this trap of thinking that it's, okay, it's mission, it's teaching, and it's passion, and relationship just takes care of itself. And yet the New Testament church was incredibly relational. All of the one another's, uh, uh, that, that doesn't happen when you see each other once a week with a notebook taking notes. These were communities with no mobility. Uh, they were Mayberry USA. They were people living together and and actually too much in each other's business uh, the way we look at it today. And then I began to realize that uh, what you have often happen is is people don't leave a sick church. You know, it's gone through two embezzlements and three affairs and they finally leave and you go, what took you so long? <laughs> they always say the same thing. All my friends are there. Yep. And it, it hit me that if I can, my goal, my dream, we don't hit it, but if everybody had one or two of their best friends at North Coast, that won't cause us to grow larger. That's not my goal. It'll allow me to disciple them. Mm-hmm. Because in this culture of choices and mobility, when you say things people don't like, they leave. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and, and you can say that with credibility in California. Yeah. And if all their friends are there, guess what? They stay. I remember a sermon a, a few years ago during an election cycle where I said some things that really teed off a bunch of people. Well, I had the freedom a lot of larger church and smaller church pastors don't have. I could preach the same sermon from a different text the next week because uh, I, I got a theory that when you throw a rock uh, into a pack of dogs, the one who yelps is the one who got hit. And uh, <laughs> and so when, when when I got this negative response to truth from Scripture, I was like, okay, here we come again. And I don't didn't really worry that, oh, they'll be gone because it's like, oh, all their friends are there. They're going to be mad at me. They'll get over it. <laughs> so uh, the sticky church paradigm is too often misunderstood as a way to get the church big. And I go, no, it has nothing to do with getting the church big. It's sticking the people so you can disciple them. Because mm. discipling means sometimes telling them stuff they don't want to hear. And in this culture, they go somewhere else. Hmm. If they're sticky, they don't. And so um, Sticky Church for you funnels primarily through groups, correct? Absol- absolutely. Sermon-based small groups. So. Sermon-based small groups, so the non-reader male can listen to the sermon and he's ready. Hmm. Uh, you know, so many of our studies ask people to be articulate, to, to read a lot, to think through, and it's, come on, the drywall is... I love Dallas yep. Willard, but like I went to university a long time. I have trouble understanding him. <laughs> right. Yeah. What happens is most of us pastors, we're more articulate, we're readers, we're reflective. We're a lot like a truck driver. <laughs> yeah. So what you do you summarize the messages then, or they listen to the whole 50 minutes, or how does that no, work? No, they, they listen to the message, uh, but it's it's a way, I mean, think about it, the the way we trick people into preparing for our small groups is is they're listening to the message. So right. you normally couldn't get somebody to do 50 minutes of study. And then mm-hmm. you can do our homework in five minutes to 35 minutes. But let's say you're doing the five-minute shallow version. I don't really care. I still got you to, to listen, to take some notes, and now you're going to talk about it. On educational theory, man, I've just hit a home run. Yeah. And I've made it accessible for men. Yeah, tell us about that. What makes it accessible for men? Is that your approach to the message, or or what is it about the format that that men love? Plain language, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, not asking uh, people to reflect particularly uh, in in the sense that like a lot of pastors do. You know, there's a reason women's Bible studies are bigger than men. Uh, publishers know this fact. This is uh, in the American church. Uh, 55% of American men will never read a book cover to cover after their last day of formal education. Did not know that. Yeah. And most pastors go, oh, how horrible. And most men go, yeah, what else is new on that? Because this is not an indictment of the educational system. These are guys that get master's degrees, business mm-hmm. degrees, whatever. The male brain is not a reading brain as a whole. Uh, and it's not a reflective journaling brain as a whole. That's just the way it works. And so much of our, 
our, our discipleship patterns in the American and Western European church is designed about you read, you reflect, and you come up with principles conduct yeah. Bible study. And, uh, I mean, there's guys that make a whole lot of money out there in the corporate world. There are lawyers, uh, there are engineers. They, they, they don't think that way. True. And so, so we give them this thing and we say, you, you listen, you journal. What do you think this means? And they freeze. So, uh, so we're getting them into the word. But what we're trying to do is say, you know what? If you're reflective, great, you'll do that. We have tons of women in our studies and mm-hmm. tons of reading men. I'm a reader, but we want to make it accessible uh, for the guy that that's that's not how his brain works. So you saying read no page. reflection? Like, is it different questions then, other than you know, think of a time when or how would you apply this to your life? Or well, it's got a few of those, but uh, it does it doesn't major on those. Okay. Okay, because, you know, I, I want to go after the reader. <laughs> I want to go after the women in our church and, uh, you know, the 45% of men who do read books. Uh, but at the same time, I better have some questions that are uh, just a little more straightforward. And at the end of the line, uh, if he's listened to the message and he's gotten into the, the scriptures, he's looked at a few cross-references and his answers to the, can you remember a time or what do you think Peter was feeling if his answers to those are very shallow, I still hooked him in to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So can you give? Um, so Larry, give me an example of uh, a good question for the non-reader, and then a bad question, if you could. Okay. Well, uh, again, you can have questions that they're not uh, very uh, comfortable answering. I don't. Yeah. I don't mind stretching people. So we would still have what you think, but but if you have a lot of questions, for instance, uh, you're uh, we're going through Exodus right now. And mm-hmm. uh, there's that section coming up in a couple of weeks where uh, Moses goes into the tent of meeting. Uh, I, I mean, excuse me, he comes down the mountain, and every time he came into the tent of meeting, he put a veil when he came out over his face. And then Corinthians says it was fading away, yeah. uh, and that's why he did it and didn't want to know. So, I mean, I would teach that to guys who never been in church because he is seeking. He wants to know. But I would always want to use plain language. That would be very important so that he could understand it. But then the small group question might say, uh, why do you think Moses uh, did that? Uh, well, unless you showed him the Corinthian passage, he's going to go, ah, how the heck do I know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so it's a more verbal processing type person who says, well, it could be this, it could be that. And they love to speculate. But what happens with men is men don't like to feel stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we all know that. You know, they don't ask for directions unless they absolutely have to. They, ha- they hate anything that makes them feel stupid. So when you get into speculation on an area they don't know anything about, uh, those kind of, well, what do you think or why? Or, I mean, they're just petrified. Like, I'm going to say something that sounds really stupid. Good point. And so those are the questions. I, I don't mind one or two because they'll go, oh, I don't know. But if there's like five of them. Yeah, yeah then I don't know anything and I just waste like two hours or of my life. Or especially you say, well, well, how does this compare with the way that uh, we sometimes shield our shame? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, again, I, I call it the drywaller truck driver. He's kind of my stereotype. He's going to go, uh. What? what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> but again, you can't, you don't, it's not that you have none of those questions because then what you're going after, you're just going after all the non-readers and you're leaving all the readers behind. I don't want to be, I don't want to do that either. Yeah. So what, what kind of questions do they like? Uh, they like concrete questions. Right. Uh, so uh, take a look at this passage and that passage that compares it. Or maybe you say, hey, did, if uh, we noticed uh, he, he, uh, he veiled his face, but Corinthians has a has a uh, reason why. What was the reason? Well, then right. the guy can read it because it was fading away. Okay. Well, why do you think it was fading away? That's something like uh, I don't know. <laughs> and by the way, pastors, we don't know either. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. We went to seminary for three years, and we still don't yeah. Know why. But but readers, reflectors, don't mind speculating. Dude, that's great. That's great. That's super helpful. Okay, do you think it's possible to completely close the door? You know, I hear people saying, we've just shut the back door. Do you have some attrition? Is that just natural? Absolutely, we have attrition. Uh, but what I don't want to do is I don't want the attrition because they become familiar with things uh, and they feel like, well, I can skip it. Yeah. Uh, and so that's where that relational connection comes. Uh, I mean, let's be honest. The best preacher... Uh, during the, some point in your sermon, everybody takes a holiday and looks at the bulletin. Mm-hmm. 
the, the best sermon series, the best small groups, the greatest youth ministries, whatever it is you're trying to do, the most missional thing to bless your community, people go through cycles of boredom. Yeah. And, and so yeah. what I'm trying to do is to say, you know, if they walk away, it's not because they got bored in a culture of just all of these things coming at you and opportunities. Uh, I want it to be because, no, they actually decided they wanted to walk away from Jesus. Wow. And so the relational component is what keeps them there during those seasons of boredom. And I just don't think we're honest enough that that's the normal spiritual journey, and it is for mm-hmm. us as well. And sometimes that has nothing to do with the church. It's just something going on in their life or at work, and they're just not around as much. Can we be honest about our marriages? They go through high points, and they go through more boring points. And you're st- I mean, you stay there for commitment sometimes, and you stay there because this is the greatest gift God's ever given me sometimes. Um, and and so I, I'm just a realist with the people I, I disciple. I look in the mirror and go, you know, they're a lot like me. Yeah, they have exactly. highs and lows. They have boredom times. I'm not always passionate about my walk with Jesus. Come on. Yeah, that's refreshing. So, like, do you have stats? Like, what is normal attrition in a church, and then where are the alarm yeah. bells going? Very good question, because— uh, uh, I always tell churches when they ask how to get it, I go, well, you've got to keep track of things for three or four years, and then you'll figure what your norm is. Mm-hmm. So my benchmarks aren't of any value to someone else except for a starting point because every sure. culture and environment's different. But for instance, uh, on new believe adult believers, uh, we we keep at the three-year mark about 74% of them are still connected to North Coast Church. Wow. And uh, I I know that's a good number because we've kept it for years. Now, we eliminate those who move. We don't call that a loss. Okay. Okay? But the way we do evangelism, which is about every six to seven weeks doing an in-gathering, not celebrating how many people sign up for the gym, but how many people show up, (laughs) uh, asking them to actually write down on a card they made that decision. uh, So we take those numbers. We eliminate uh, the Nazarenes because they get saved every week. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that, seriously, the theological differences we'll have on that, we yeah. go, okay, first-time decisions. And so we track all our adult self-identified first-time decisions, and I know that if I'm dropping below 70% at the three-year mark, that we're, uh, we're, we're not assimilating them well. Okay, that's good to know. So that doesn't include people who got transferred to Chicago or... No, nope. you know, we'll, that's we just people who still live in the community who still have the option of attending, and they just and, disappeared off our chart, and we don't know what or why. Okay, well, that's good to know. That's a helpful benchmark. But I want people to hear. I want leaders to hear. That means twenty five percent potentially go away, and that's just kind of life. It's. I think you reference this in your book. It's a parable of the sower, right? I always uh, think Jesus wrote that to encourage. Absolutely, preachers. and then you know, in another com- uh, community, it might be fifty percent is great six. I don't know. Uh, I yeah, think a transient off- community like a military town or that sort of thing. Yeah, well, we actually are a military town, but okay. a transient, you're counting them, they moved. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's it. But, but what I think too often happens is, is those of us that have been privileged to have a platform the re- a larger body of Christ listens to, mm-hmm. uh, we take God's calling, God's uh, 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 anointing, and, and the benchmarks of our community, and then we spread them out like everybody else ought to be there. You know, we have 90% of our weekend attendance adults in the month of October is our benchmark. Uh, we have over 90% of that number in small groups. So then people go, oh, man, I want to get to that 80. You, 80 is our benchmark. We're usually at 90, though. And I go, well, I don't know your community. Mm-hmm. Uh, each of us have, we, we, we cannot take uh, our measurements from someone else. They're just a starting point. Nah, that, there that's are people a, that's a good point. Who, who are more successful than we are at 50%. Hmm. That's good to think of. All right, here's, here's, I want to get to sticky teams because this is fascinating to me. But before we get there, you write about and speak about hamstringing some of your ministries, which is interesting because we're all familiar these days with a simple church model, right? Andy Stanley, Tom Rayner, that sort of thing. You know, do a real simple church, just do a few things. You talk pretty openly about uh, wrestling with that and sometimes being persuaded to add some ministries but there are some ministries you add, and you never want them to really be that successful. So you, you call it hamstringing, if I understand that right. right. Talk yeah. about that philosophy, because that's interesting to me. 
Yeah, I remember reading Simple Church and laughing because we were a simple church without knowing it. You know, we did <laughs> yeah. a title. But that, uh, another analogy we use, a lot of your readers might know of the famous In-N-Out Burgers uh, yep. chain that's out here. And uh, at an In-N-Out Burger, you can get burger, fries, and a drink. You can't get a chalupa. You can't get a salad. You can't get – that's all. And that's – we're an In-N-Out Burger church. Uh-huh. Uh, a worship service, a youth program, children's program on the weekend, youth does have midweek, mm-hmm. and small groups. And that that's pretty much it. But what happens is at In-N-Out Burger, there's a lot of off-menu things. They're not on the menu, but if you ask for an animal-style burger or a lettuce-wrap yeah. burger or what, there's over 100 different things. And so at North Coast, the way we found the balance is we let those things take place, but they're off-menu. We don't push them. We don't... Uh, hmm. Uh, we don't say, hey, it's gone really well for the last few years. We've had this amazing men's desert rat, you know, go out in the desert and play with the boy toys, you know, yeah. driving crazy things. Well, if I have leaders who want to do it and uh, it, it can pull off, yeah, we'll do it. But if that leader moves, we, we haven't started some new thing. We've got to keep growing. Do you fund it? Um, yeah, we'll fund them for a while, but not okay. not uh, not with a lot. We'll, we'll seed it if we think it's good and it's doing good work. But it's all off menu. That yeah. that's that's how we hamstring them. Another another metaphor you've used is the two night time slot that you think yes. people basically can commit to two nights a week of something or two or time two slots time a week slots, rather, not, not two nights. nights. Yeah. So Sunday morning plus your sermon based small group, and that's right. about it. And the reason you hamstring them is because of that third time slot, really, then competing with Sunday or groups. Yeah, I don't want to compete with the core of our ministry, which is we yeah. don't want you in a men's softball league. We want you in a Bible study with your wife. Right. Uh, we don't want the women going to an evening Bible study. We want them in one with their husband. But their uh, leaders will give you three time slots. Ministry animals will give you four, five, and six. It's mm. the people you're trying to reach in the community that don't know Jesus or are, you know, just starting out, or they got a 50-hour work week and an hour commute each way, or their kid, you know, is special, like everybody's kid, and has to be in a club program. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you better design your ministry for two time slots for the average person. Now, for instance, we have a women's Bible study, but it's in the daytime, because retired women and stay-at-home moms, they'll give us a third time slot. Yep. But what I don't want to go is, now let's add a women's Bible study at night for those who work. I go, no, 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 no. Now we're breaking the two-time slot rule. And so basically your filter is, if you have two shots at the average person a week, what do you want them to be? And for you, the call is Sunday morning, sermon-based small group. That's it. Absolutely. 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 Okay. And, we, and we realize we can get a third, but we're not going to push it because if it starts to compete with the core... Uh, people, it's like elective courses, right? If you have elective Bible studies, everybody's going to choose Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and and they don't want, really want to study Revelation. They just want you to tell them who the Antichrist is. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and, and so people tend to choose, if you give them too many options, they don't choose what's best for them. They choose what sounds most interesting to them. Yeah, that's very true. And then you get people off mission, because that's not really the mission anyway. Now, let's uh, let's talk about sticky teams. By the way, let me say one thing, because you mentioned mission. Yeah. Because people hear the sermon-based small groups, they go, where's mission? Well, we average two service projects a day in our community. We're hyper-missional, but it runs through our small groups, and it's built on relationships rather than mission, assuming mission will create relationship. Uh, I think mission creates intense relationship that once you get back from the mission trip, uh, you after the barbecue, you never see them again. So, so we build on the relationship and then send the mission. That's a good word. So let's talk about sticky teams, because uh, this, this, I thought, was just a very unique voice um, that you've got. Now, you had to figure out how to make your board, your governing board sticky, how to align your staff as it grew. And um, do you want to just drill down on that? What are the keys to... Um, creating a healthy board? Well, at the end of the day, it's all about alignment, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, whether it's staff, it's board or whatever, because what happens in most churches, let's say you don't have a healthy board. What you've really got is people with different either visions or they've got the same envision goal. They want to make disciples, but they've got two different paths they want to take. Uh, Or 
you've got people I, I used in that the analogy of as you grow, you go through being more like a, a, a track star, the church planner, to golfing buddies, a small team, to a basketball team, to a football team and all those. Well, when somebody thinks that we're we have basketball team relationships where everybody knows everything. Yeah, there's role players, but everybody knows everything. And your church has grown to football size where we can't know everything. You're going to have dysfunction. But that's really an issue of alignment, differing expectations. Okay. In fact, most conflict comes because of differing expectations. Yeah. So take us through how you discovered that with your board and how you addressed it. <laughs> well, first of all, all hell was breaking loose. You know? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, people took copious notes uh, from my sermons, and then we'd have a board meeting, and suddenly I was an idiot. Uh, you know, they, uh, like what, what, what happened here? And I began to realize we had totally different expectations of my role as a leader, their role is, you know, they saw themselves as supervisors rather than wise counsel and support and advisors and accountability. Uh, uh, we had different visions of, uh, of, uh, how we should reach the community. We had different visions of, uh, how money ought to be spent, what priorities were. And so, uh, what I did is, uh, I, I assumed uh, that my focus should be upon my community, upon my congregation, and that we just have unity on the board because they were all mature Christians who loved Jesus. And I went, boy, that was stupid. <laughs> it didn't work out that way. Yeah. So I stepped back and said, you know what? We got to get ourselves in alignment. And that's one of the major things I did at the three-year mark was to start training the elders with the type of stuff I had been learning and assumed they know or I, or I stuffed in my back pocket until we were talking about something and pulled out all the stuff that the experts in church ministry know. Uh, right. Well, I'm exposing to them that to that in the midst of a decision. I'm coming off like a lobbyist. And I, I realized, you know what I need to do is I need to train these. Uh, we're complementarian, which I realize not all listeners are. I don't have a chip on my shoulder, but our board was all men. And uh, at, at that point, I go, you know, I need to train these men for the job they have. Mm-hmm. And the job they have is leading the church. And in the past, all I'd done is train leaders how to have better Bible studies and share their faith. Yeah. But I still wasn't teaching them how to lead. And so what they brought to the table was how to lead in the environment they were in, a regulatory banker, uh, sales and marketing, metrics-oriented manufacturer, a, you know, a, a manufacturing guy or sales and market, whatever it would be. And, and that began to bring some alignment as we would read together the same books I read in ministry, as we would, uh, I would share with them the things I'd learned on a podcast like this or whatever. Yeah. And as we had shared experiences we began to come up with a shared value system and alignment. It's, it's kind of like this, uh, Harry. Uh, you get people who went to the same seminary, right. and they've got the same lingo. Even if they don't totally agree, they've had the same backlog of experiences, which helps them communicate. Yes. And, and so I realized that's what I need to do with my board. We have no shared experiences outside of life and ministry, but no background of theology, of, of uh, practical theology, any of these things. And as we began to read books, uh, work through things together, we began to get a common core of knowledge so that even when we disagreed, at least we were using the same language. That's really good. So do you keep a small board? How big is your board? Uh, our lay uh, board is seven people right now. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? I think my ideal number is five to seven. Yeah. It's just in that well, small range. Why do, why do you go so slow? Because people just assume. Like, I've been in churches of 300 that have elders, like 40 elders. I'm like, what? Well, because they confuse the role of leadership and accountability with the role of ministry. And okay. so as the church is going, getting larger, they go, well, we need more voices. We know, yes, you need more information I, I, on all that. But when it comes to the leadership decision, if you get larger than seven in any group of people— all the power suddenly shifts to the angry and the stubborn mm. because groups want so consensus. Good. So right. let's say, and this is true in the business world as well, you have yeah. a committee of seven people in the business world or in church, and somebody is angry or stubborn, everything gets tabled because mm-hmm. the, the group wants harmony. That's the natural pull of a group. And when I get down to seven, then my introverts speak. Uh, and then when there's conflict or disagreement, we can work it through. At 12, the angry and stubborn rule, which is why so many churches get bottlenecked. They have way too many people uh, at, at the decision-making level, which is different than the information-gathering level. There I want as much many voices as possible. 
Right. So that can feed into your board or, or whatever structure you're using. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've always felt I want, I want the number of senior leaders around the table that fit around one dinner table where we can have one conversation. You know, you have the dinner party yep. that it goes to two conversations or three conversations because you can't all talk. It's like one conversation around the table. And we have been at our healthiest when our board has been at the smallest. Absolutely. That that, that's totally been my experience. Same with senior staff. I work best with a team of three hmm. when we're just really dreaming. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm more of a consensus team leader. So I okay. like not just me, but when it gets more than three, uh, my eyes are shifting to see body language of everybody. It's just too hard. So uh, there, there are probably some people out there who are going, I don't know whether I buy this because are you just, are you just trying to get yes people around? Are you trying to control the board? Like, how do you make sure you have a variety of opinions without, and I love your phraseology, the angry or the stubborn winning the day, but like, how do you manage that tension between small and yet significant enough that you've actually got a diversity of opinions around the table? Well, your research should be diverse. You know, that's where okay. you meet with all of the staff, say, in our case. We do these uh, annual uh, setup next year's essentials. We meet with every department head of all of our campuses and everything. That's 60-some-odd people that we're asking, hey, what do we not know that we need to know? Uh, sure. It would be a great year next year if North Coast did this. Uh, here's a roadblock in front of us. Uh, you know, and we get that whole team to identify all that information. But then the smaller group takes that research and comes up with a conclusion. And I think where the mistake happens is we go, okay, let's get all 64 people together. Let's get all of this input. And then let's, let's ask them if they all sign off. Yeah, let's that's vote. Where, uh-huh, <laughs> that's where the, the, the stubborn and the angry begin to control. So at North Coast, we get lots and lots of voices. And then we say, thank you very much. And uh, they don't have the expectation that – uh, we will necessarily do what they said. I mean, you've had it. Everybody oh, listens yeah. at it. Yeah. People say, you, you're not listening to me. No, I'm listening to you. I can tell you what you said and why you said it. I don't agree with you. Right. And we're going to make a different yeah. choice. Yeah. So the, the other thing that, that I think, and I don't know that you wrote about this specifically, but I mean, you've certainly had to navigate this, is you know, the level of decision-making an elder board can make at 200 is completely different than 11,000. <laughs> How have you navigated that at your senior leader level? You know, when, when, you know, you can know how much photocopying costs when there's 200 and it's probably not a whole lot of people or, you know, oh, you're going to hire a person. I mean, they probably don't even know all the staff by name at this point, the board. Absolutely not. So how do you help a board function as your church grows and scales? Well, frankly, that's why I wrote Sticky Teams, is it was a book I wish I'd had that explained those differences. Because when you're at a church planning stage, you need around you people who will help you do the task. So you Mm -hmm. usually have, you know, elders, board, deacon, big shots, whatever you call them. Uh, In our case, we call them elders, uh, uh, who they have assignments. Like you're the Christian education, you're the worship, you're the this. Then You You go raise some money. (laughs) Yeah. And then you, then you get a little larger, you need people to approve, because in a smaller uh, environment, they, there's just too much information everybody knows, so uh, you get approval. And then somewhere around 400 or maybe five, uh, if you're going to have that team always approve everything, you're going to be bottlenecked. You're only going to have 12 decision days a year. So we call it review. Uh, and that means we're going to tell you what happened and you don't beat us up with Monday morning quarterback, though you do have the permission quarterbacking. You do have the permission to say you don't do that one again. OK, we won't. Uh, but but then somewhere around 800 to 1000, you've got to move to governance mm-hmm. and uh, governance is where uh, the board holds accountability for character and uh, integrity and legal and all that. But like, for instance, our board, uh, the, their boundaries are we're going to spend less than we uh, bring in. That's yeah, what's about it. Okay. And you're going to, within this boundary, you know, we hired you as a staff to make those decisions mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of like, well, just a couple of weeks ago, $45,000 soundboard went out at one of our campuses. Okay. okay. Well, I, I can't wait three weeks for a board meeting to say, can we do that? It wasn't in the budget. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have to have a structure where we say, oh, crap. OK, mm-hmm. we're spending less uh, than we bring in. We've got the money. Go and buy it. Right. Uh, and, and they might not even know about it until they, they the won't know report. unless they listen they to this know. podcast. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> what, what they what they will know is at the end of uh, every month uh, where we in the black. 
mm-hmm. or on a rolling budget, you know, where we did we plan yeah. to be? Did in you the hit rest? your targets? Did you hit your targets? Yeah. I get that. Yeah, and, and then, that's all ask. And so that's a high trust relationship between you and the board too, and a high accountability relationship. Absolutely, you cannot have a healthy team if there's not high trust. And so what That's I'm so always good. telling, uh, in fact, I was just up in Seattle uh, yesterday speaking to a group of pastors, and we were talking about this very issue. And I said, too often the mindset is, well, we need somebody to supervise and make sure the leadership team doesn't get away with anything. <laughs> right? That's like and, a police. Yeah. Know, and police and I, go, I go, listen, the problem isn't too much trust. The problem is too low character. And, and so, listen, if somebody has high character, you should trust them implicitly. And what a board needs to do is make sure they're getting people that are trustworthy. And like in my case, my board could fire me. If I'm not trustworthy and I'm making bad decisions, get rid of me. Mm. But if I am trustworthy and we're making good decisions, then the three of us, uh, the other teaching pastor and our exec pastor who kind of make up that triad of leadership, trust us. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's exactly the philosophy we adopted at Connexus Church. Yeah. It's like, fire don't, me. Don't, don't start with a bias we can't be trusted. Start with a bias we can be trusted right. and then hold us accountable. And I think that's so good. So if you have a leader you can't trust, you just hired the wrong leader. Totally. The solution isn't a bunch of hoops to make them jump through. The solution is get rid of them. Wow. Okay, let's talk about young leaders. we got a lot of young leaders listening to this podcast. I hear from them regularly. You uh, talk about letting young eagles fly. What do you mean by that? Well, I think most churches over time get some young eagles, but what happens is the former young eagles, as we grow older, uh, we see them as eaglets. (laughs) (laughs) The, the, The freshmen get smaller every year, and the fact is they didn't get smaller, we just got older. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I believe that uh, a church does not have to grow old and gray uh, just because it's been around 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the uh, reason it goes, grows old and gray is it doesn't have a place at the significant decision-making table for those who will inform it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened is I was 28 years old and I was qualified to be the senior pastor here. Yeah, <laughs> And at, at 35 years, I'd been here seven years, was experienced and all this kind of stuff. But then a number of years ago, we brought in a hotshot 35-year-old that we were going to put on the elder board right away. Incredible resume, incredible giftedness. And I had a couple board members say, well, we need to test him a little bit. He's young. <laughs> and I went, he's not young. I mean, he could be president of the stinking United States at 35 years old. Legally, absolutely. Yeah. We've just grown old. And so we work really hard to make sure uh, at the decision-making level, which for us is much more staff than board because our board is a group of Yodas who aren't managing. Sure. But w- when it comes to branding and what should we do, we always need to have people that are in their 30s at that table. Oh, and yeah. it's amazing to me how many people think a, a 25 or 28-year-old is young. You didn't think you were young when you were that age. <laughs> That's a good point. So you let them fly. Um, how much responsibility do you give young leaders? And I mean, obviously, the answer is going to vary depending on the leader. Totally. In my yeah. mind, you don't consider age. Like, for instance, I believe he was 25 years old when in our largest campus, you know, it's so large, our high school ministries uh, broken into two completely different ones, 11, 12, 9, 10. And uh, he was either 25 or 26 years old when we hired the guy who now leads it. Uh, the 11th, 12th. Uh, I mean, he's replacing a 42-year-old. And I had a few people push back, well, he's awful young. Uh, So my answer was, so should we go out and find a guy who's not as good and older? (laughs) You know, what we had checked is is he didn't have a big head. He had good character. So we weren't worried about, you know, elevating somebody too quickly. Uh, So I just think age should not be in the equation. Yeah, I Uh, agree. And, and, um, you know, most of our, our worship teams are led by people that are in their 20s and occasionally by uh, their 30s at our biggest venue. In fact, a few weeks ago, we had an uh, uh, 18-year-old uh, leading our largest venue. We, cool. we don't let it. We have a, kind of a school of ministry. We're raising up worship leaders because we need so many bands. We have like 26 or something we need. Wow. And uh, we won't let a high schooler. We just think, man, that's not really good. But, you know, he's graduated he from graduated, high school. graduated, so there you go. He showed great character. He's really gifted. Like, put him up in front on our biggest stage. 
You just encouraged a ton of young leaders. And uh, I think that's great. We just appointed a 28-year-old elder at our church. So, you know, and that was one of those like, well, what is the age for eldership? It's like, no, what are the qualifications for eldership? And, yeah. And, and again, you know, the what's the age 28? It's like they forget. Well, the church planner planted it at 26. I was 30 when I started. And, yeah. you know, like, gosh, yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. Um, okay, back to alignment. What are a few of the best ways to keep not just your staff and board, but your congregation aligned? I see the relational thing. I, th- I see the smaller is better in terms of alignment. I see the clarity and the common language and the time spent together so that you're basically, you've all got the same picture of the future. How does that translate to the church? Well, I think it's really actually pretty easy to keep the congregation aligned. Okay, because that naturally flows out of a staff and uh, a board that's aligned. Because right. a congregation will almost always follow. I hardly ever find a congregation out of alignment without looking upstream and going, "Well, yeah, it's out of alignment because you've got all these silo ministries that are fighting one another." Mm-hmm. And so the recovery ministry is all upset. It's not getting the you know the Tuesday night that the youth ministry is taking over or. And the, but when I look, it's, it's really not flowing from the congregation because they will either fall in line or leave, you yes. know, the kind of people who who don't share your mission. And and part of it is I think we should quit worrying about the people who leave because we confuse the church with our church. And all of us are simply elective Sunday schools classes in God's great church in our community. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the old uh, kind of Baptist uh, adult Sunday school programs or whatever, where they'd have a bunch of electives in a, a real large church, nobody in the church and the pastor never got upset if somebody went from one of the elective courses to another one. And they'd have big ones and small ones and different focus. And everybody was happy. Starbucks yeah. doesn't care if you go from one to another. Now, the manager might care. Right. But Starbucks, they don't even care if you go to Seattle's best because they, <laughs> because own, they it. own it as well. Right. And uh, if we would have more of that mindset, it'd be easier to keep our churches in alignment and our team because we quit worrying about everybody we lost because we didn't lose them when they go down the street to another church. Man, uh, man. You know, there's I, there's I, no loss there. Come on. I would I'd totally recommend people picking up a copy of Sticky Teams. Uh, confession, I read it in preparation for this interview. And like I told you, I'm like, where has this been all my life? My goodness, I teach on this stuff, and it's just it's the best, best exposition I've seen. And I couldn't agree more with congregational alignment. You know, healthy at the top, healthy at the bottom, aligned at the top, aligned at the bottom, unaligned at the top, unaligned at the bottom. It's just that's the way it works. So you got a conference coming up. Tell us a little bit about it. You do uh, the Sticky Church Conference? Yeah, it's a Sticky Church Conference we do every year. We do an East Coast version, and, and we do a, a West Coast version. Uh, and uh, it's designed for teams. Okay. It actually, it's less money uh, when you bring your team than when you come alone. We punish the pastor who says, I want to come and learn how to build teams, but I want to come alone. And uh, every year we just take some aspect of, uh, of team building. You know, last year uh, was on leading well. The one that we've uh, come, uh, got coming up is uh, on exploring off the map, uh, mm-hmm. kind of creativity and, and all of that. And then we have uh, the classic workshops. But one of the fun things about it is it's, uh, we, we cap it at 800 wow. uh, and there's no green room. So it's uh, all access. That's awesome. Uh, and so we've had, uh, and we have different uh, 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 different leaders come. You know, we've had uh, Perry Noble to a Matt Chandler uh, yeah. to, uh, uh, so that people don't come and go, okay, we want to be North Coast. Because we go, we don't want you to be North Coast. We want you to be you. Right. So we'll expose you to some different leaders who look at, in this time, exploring off the map creativity uh, differently. Uh, you come with your team. All the speakers are available. Uh, it's it's kind of a fun thing. In fact, I often ask guys, uh, make your talk on the way, on the airplane on the way here. Really? Uh, yeah, because we go, it's really raw. We want, we want you just talking about what you're learning uh, instead of bring your sugar stick. Uh, and, <laughs> That's great. And so where can people get information on that? Uh, they can just go to uh, uh, northcoasttraining.com uh, okay. or they uh, could go, uh, they could just type in uh, Sticky Church, uh, Sticky Teams okay. mm-hmm. uh, conference and, and find it or our website, northcoastchurch.com. Okay. And we'll link to all that in the show notes too. Yeah. And catch me afterward. I'll give you the right link and then because uh, I, I didn't look it up before this. Nah, so. That's okay. I'm, I'm the yeah, same I, way. We'll have it in the show notes. And, yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll, I don't usually have to register for it. So I don't yeah, know. They let you in, do they? <laughs> that's amazing. 
Um, so a lot of, I, I um, let a few of our listeners know that we are having this um, conversation today. And, and one of the most frequently asked questions is, what do you see for the future? I mean, you've been at this 38 years. As you look forward to the future, what are, what are some of the big shifts you see coming? Or do you think it's going to be pretty much a lot of the issues that we've already dealt with? Well, I don't think anybody can predict the future. Uh, yeah. You know, nobody's any good at that except for those that the Lord anoints. Yeah. But what you can tell is what has already been done and can't be changed. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the business guru, uh, Peter Drucker, people yep. thought he was a genius to predict the uh, failure of the social safety nets and immigration problems in Europe. But he wasn't looking around the corner. He was seeing what had already happened, which was zero birth rates in Europe. Mm-hmm. And if you have zero birth rates, then 20 years from now, the social safety net's going to collapse and you're going to have immigration issues. So what am I seeing right now that's unchangeable? Uh, I I think a culture of time shifting and options. Hmm. Uh, That is, that that the networks are dead. Uh, uh, We live in a day and age where uh, people are uh, uh, choosing when and where. So, but we're still trying too often to do uh, church like the network news. Hey, tune in at six and 10 and we'll tell you what happened. It's like, dude, I knew that eight years, eight hours ago. Exactly. And so we say, come in at 9 and 11, and we will tell you uh, the good news. Mm-hmm. And they're going, sorry, my kid uh, hit a home run in T-ball. He might get a D1 scholarship. I've got him in a club program. Yep. Uh, so that, that whole sense of, of club programs, time shifting, what do you mean I've got to be here now is going to mean that larger and larger buildings are going to become less and less successful. Uh, we're going to need more, we're going to need more and more services. What I do sometimes at conferences, I have people, I go, raise your hand. If you can name the three classic, uh, uh, classic ABC, NBC, and CBS news anchors. And in a room of 400, I'll have three people who can name them all. I couldn't do it. I could do it from the eighties. I could tell you who was there. And that's what I say. You could do it 15, 20 years ago. And then I say, how many of you watched storage wars? And, and 60% of the hands go up. When do you watch it? Whenever you want. Yeah. And I go, this is a little niche show. Uh, and, and that's what the world's coming to. And if our ministries are not going to adapt to that, we're going to become dinosaurs. So how are you reacting to that? What are you doing? Well, at North Coast, we got 39 services on a weekend. Only have to preach at four of them. But, that's not uh, bad. Yeah. But uh, we've got, uh, we start Saturday night. We've got a 7.30. Thank God it's video. I'm in bed. But we got a 9. We got 11. We got a 12.45. We've got a, a, a Sunday night one uh, as as well. And then we got the different styles that we do. You know, we, we have uh, country gospel traditions, uh, live, real edgy, all these different things. And they're, they're, they all fit a changing culture where one size fits all doesn't work anymore. Right. Uh, you know, all, all the things that are aimed to reach everybody in the media have failed. That's true. What about online? What are you doing with online? And where do you uh, We don't do a lot online. I mean, we put things online Saturday because we realize lots of people listen and time shift. But for us, we were planning to go full bore into it and say, hey, we're going to have an online church. But when I did some research from my friends and, and asked this question, how long are people online? And I realized the chat room going on during the sermon uh, that what we decided is, well, we wouldn't count it as real successful if people walked in and were 10 minutes in our service yeah. and walked out or they were uh, chatting all during the sermon. So what we said is instead of an online service, we obviously have a strong online pr- uh uh, presence sure. and you know gazillion downloads, but we're not trying to have an online service. We okay. we felt for us uh, the short time span um, wasn't really what we wanted, and those people would just download it anyway. You know, a lot of house churches are doing that with our stuff. Just yeah. probably with yours, same thing. Yeah. Final word. Any thoughts? You know, my final word is uh, I'm really encouraged about the future of the church. Uh, I'm not one who wrings their hands. I, I, I get to spend a lot of time with young leaders. That's one of my major focuses. And uh, I just, I believe the church is in great hands. That the young leaders that God is raising up right now are a better group of leaders than my own generation was. And uh, yeah, the culture is getting dark, but the darker it gets, the brighter a tiny light shines. <laughs> Larry Osborne, this has been incredible. Thank you so much. A real encouragement and really refreshing. Thank you. Uh, It's been an honor. Thank you. Well, like how refreshing was that? I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't that kind of what you want to be like 
four decades or three and a half decades into leadership. I mean, I'm not quite there yet. I'm two decades into it, but like, whoo, I want to be that passionate. I, I want to, I want to be that excited about the future. And uh, Larry, just thanks so much for blazing the trail for so many people and being such an encouragement to so many leaders over uh, your ministry. So uh, you're going to want to get a copy of Sticky Teams, Sticky Church. I mean, they're fantastic books and you can find the links to those in the show notes. Just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 96. Hey, next week we are back. Fascinating story of a guy I know um, from here in Canada where I am. Uh, somebody I mentored, uh, so to speak, for a little while, who was in his first year of leadership, promising, bright Princeton grad. He and his wife were called to a church actually not too far from where I live and burned out in the first year of ministry. I mean, fascinating story. He he talks very candidly, very openly about it. Uh, and I, I used to think that burnout was something that older leaders struggled with, uh-uh, running into more and more millennials uh, who are struggling with it. So that's next week. The way to make sure that you don't miss it is to subscribe. It's free. If you haven't done that, hit the subscribe button right now. And we're back next Tuesday with a fresh episode, Grant Visser's Young and Burning Out, how he crashed in year one of ministry, but there's a happy ending, how he and his wife found new life as well and, and, and a new calling. Also, we got Frank Beeler coming up. Tony Morgan, Lee Kreicher from Pittsburgh, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. So it's going to be fantastic. Can't wait to see you next week. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.